So we're going to go kind of chronologically here, and uh, I'm going to take the period up to about 1860 or so, and he's going to do the uh, latter part of the 1800s. And um, you get the benefit of, of us having run through all of this yesterday and, and, uh, and uh, hopefully clean it up a little bit from the from yesterday. Anyway, um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about the, um, the impact of war in the early part of the, uh, the, of the 1800s on monetary stability, and also say a few things about the um, Panic of 1837. Um, I teach this to students who aren't very aware of uh, what's what's going on with American history, so I, I have to break some new ground to teach him a little basic history first. And um, I was I, I was grading papers earlier this week. I had talked to my students. At some point, I had mentioned to them that economics had this uh, had this name, the dismal science. And uh, so I was grading papers this week, and I thought, okay, well, they're getting some things, they're not getting other things, and Maybe I need to do better on this or that. And I came across a paper where a student uh, referred to economics. She said that um, economics was the dismissal of science. <laughs> so <laughs> at that point, I thought, well, you know, maybe the Keynesians are the dismissal of science, right? So um, that, I, I'm not sure how much I'm getting through, but you're, you're all very attentive, and I'm hopeful. So... Um, Anyway, um, the United States really started off with a lot of debt resulting from war. Um, with the War for Independence, it was not, as wars go, it was actually not as expensive a war as you might, as you might think, but it was still a lot of debt, especially for an institution like the Continental Congress that did not have the ability to, uh, to tax um, and the, the cost of the war was maybe only about 10% of GDP um, from 1775 to about 1783. Um, the Continental Congress tried to borrow, and of course there were some sympathetic powers in Europe willing to lend us money, even though they might have been somewhat skeptical about whether they were going to get that money back. The, the French, the Dutch, the Spanish were willing to lend us some money. But the new Continental Congress had no real taxing authority. It, uh, couldn't levy any internal taxes or tariffs. It could simply uh, ask the states for money under the Art Articles of Confederation, which, frankly, we wish we could get back to. Uh, they didn't have that. They didn't have that power, which is probably a good thing. Um, and so, what they did, something I alluded to in my talk this morning, is if you can't tax very easily and you can't borrow very easily because you don't have much credit then you're left with the printing press, which is what the Continental Congress ended up doing. And in fact, um, by the end of the, uh, of the war, after seven years of war, the Continental Congress had issued some $241 million of, of paper. Uh, and by 1781, these were worth about one five hundredth of their face value. So they lost almost all of their value. It became a kind of a saying, if you're going to say something is worthless, then it's not worth a continental. Um, of course, a lot of, a lot of banks and, and state governments were issuing their own, their own money. A lot of those state government currencies also um, ended up meeting the same fate as the continental currency. 
Uh, states issued about $200 million worth of currency all total compared to, as I think I said, about $241 million issued by the Continental Congress. So these were not, this is not a kind of a successful experiment in the, in the issuance of paper money. Uh, and yet there were those who wanted to continue to consolidate banking in the hands of the state. Alexander Hamilton, of course, was one of those who had an expansive view of the idea of, of uh, a stronger federal government, of central banking, of uh, tariffs, of course, and, and all of those things that would end up creating a much more powerful federal uh, government. Um, Hamilton pushed for a government bank in line with that objective, and he got one in 1791. It was the first bank of the United States. It started with a 20-year charter. This was kind of a concession to those who were opponents of the bank, so at least it had a kind of a sunset after uh, 20 years. But it had the special privilege of being the only government bank. And it had a requirement that it lend money to the U.S. government. It also had the advantage of getting a lot of federal dollars deposited in it, which tended to strengthen it. Uh, it could establish branches in multiple states, and so it had all these, these, these advantages. Federalists tended to support the bank, federalists like Hamilton. Jeffersonians were skeptical. They thought it was not uh, constitutional. Um, and uh, so the bank was a controversial institution for its, its, its entire existence. And when 1811 came along and the charter expired, the, uh, the bank um, was, was allowed to, to, um, to, to disappear, at least as a federal institution. Um, but the, the next major war for the United States was the War of 1812. And this was a war that we essentially lost. Um, and it was very expensive for us. Uh, it was expensive partly because the U.S. government was getting its money primarily from tariffs at the time. And if you go to war with a major trading partner like Britain, and Britain's also blockading your ports as part of that conflict, then you're not getting imports in. You can't tax uh, those, uh, those imports. And so the War of 1812 hit the U.S. Treasury very, very hard. Uh, so much so that um, when Andrew Jackson needed to move troops to New Orleans to fight the last battle of the War of 1812, uh, the Secretary of State, James Monroe, had to essentially co-sign for the federal government, pledged his own personal fortune to um, make sure that Jackson would have the money to, to get to New Orleans uh, for, that, for that last battle. So by 1814, the imports in, uh, into the United States had dropped to about one-tenth of the peak that occurred in 1807. Uh, trade um, was falling, um, uh, of course, again, because of that blockade, because of the war. And so um, the government tried to raise funds by doubling tariff rates, but that didn't exactly help. Uh, not very much money was generated by that because there was so little trade. Um, one of the longer-term effects of this was that the um, New England manufacturing firms benefited from having their foreign competitors cut off by the British and by the war. So when the war ended, uh, this little 
interest group of manufacturers wanted that blockade essentially to continue. And since the war, unfortunately for them, had ended, they managed to lobby for higher tariffs. And that lobbying persisted, uh, and we got uh, ultimately the, the high, one of the highest tariffs we've ever seen, the moral tariff, which was finally enacted in 1860. Um, it was one of the key parts of the Lincoln economic policy platform was to have a very high protective tariff. Um, so Henry Clay, one of the, one of the I, I guess you could say like a mentor of Lincoln, certainly the inspiration for a lot of those economic ideas that were adopted by the Republican Party, um, had the idea that banking needed to be centralized in the hands of the state, um, which actually we saw uh, a few years later pop up in the Communist Manifesto as one of the ten points of the Communist Manifesto was centralizing banking in the hands of the state. Also, um, federally funded internal improvements. Uh, states had been funding these internal improvements, but had had resulted in catastrophic losses for many states. And so, well, what are you going to do if you still want internal improvements, but the states have obviously failed at this? Well, you get the federal government to do it. And Abraham Lincoln, being a former uh, railroad lawyer, really was was involved in this, was an early supporter of some of these uh, federal projects like the Transcontinental Railroad. Um, and then uh, the tariffs were partly to protect industry and partly intended to pay for some of these, um, some of these projects. So um, banking during this period from independence until uh, the war between the states was... Um, uh, generally free, relatively free of regulation. I had mentioned this in my talk this morning. Uh, banks were chartered by state governments. There was no national currency. And overall, this was a pretty happy period for uh, American banking. Uh, if, you, if you talk to some people about uh, you know, central banking today, they have this idea that banking can't exist without heavy regulation. And when I talk to students about, um, about recent history, they say, well, you know, the, the 08, 09 recession wouldn't have occurred if we, hadn't, if we had had just more banking regulation. And so when regulation fails, the answer is, well, we need more regulation, obviously. Uh, the answer is never, well, maybe the regulation had something to do with the reason for the crisis in the first place, which uh, that's the argument that I make to my students. I say, look, you know, the, the, the reason we had the 08, 09 crisis is because of the of, of intervention that was excessive in the years leading up to it. It's an Austrian business cycle theory kind of, uh, kind of story. But one of the worst uh, monetary crises that the U.S. faced in the years before the war between states and after the, uh, the, the terrible monetary crisis of the continental currency was the uh, crisis surrounding the Panic of 1837. And this, this panic, which really was a years-long depression, resulted from one of the remaining problems during that free banking era, which is that our banking system was not a 100% reserve banking system. It was a fractional reserve system. Banks did have to have gold or silver on reserve, which was a good thing, but 
that did not have to cover 100% of their deposits. So they, they only had to have a small fraction. Um, the, um, uh, the lack of a 100% reserve system ended up producing a significant inflation, especially after about 1830. And there's several reasons for that. Um, number one, when the War of 1812 ended, this is about 1814, there began to be another push for another Bank of the United States, which ended up being the, well, second Bank of the United States, which again had a 20-year charter. Started in 1816, the charter was to expire in 1836. Um, it again was controversial. Maryland tried to tax the bank, um, which led to the famous McCullough versus Maryland Supreme Court case. Um, the bank very quickly uh, wound up in difficult financial situations because it had about $2.4 million in gold and silver reserves, but it had, only, it had uh, $22 million in liabilities. So it was pretty heavily um, leveraged. Um, Nicholas Biddle ended up taking over the bank in 1823 to try to put it back into shape. It did do relatively well for a few years, but then um, it was still a kind of a political football, and the Jackson administration, which came into office in um, 1829, um, hated the bank. Um, I, you know, I, I'm sympathetic to that, but... Um, one of the things that the Jackson administration did early on is say, look, uh, we, we, may, we may decide to take money out of the Bank of the United States, the Second Bank of the United States. The effect of this, um, and I, I'm, I'm um, pulling some of this from a paper by Scott Trask that you can find on Mises.org. Um, the effect of this was to create the impression that there was going to be a lot of federal money winding up in the hands of state chartered banks. Those state chartered banks would then have an enormous growth potential from having those federal dollars dumped into them. And so there was a kind of a, a burst of activity as people tried to, to start these state banks that would then have the opportunity to take advantage of all of that, that federal, federal money. So starting in 1830, not long after Andrew Jackson made that statement about maybe, uh, maybe taking dollars out of the Bank of the United States, a monetary inflation set in. Um, some people have, have suggested that the inflation that we saw was due to silver coming in from Mexico, and that probably did have something to do with it. Uh, but the, the main thing was probably this, this speculation that, that money was going to soon wind up in state banks that did not have the same specie requirements that the Bank of the United States had had. Along with this inflation came an asset bubble. I mean, this is, this is classic Austrian business cycle theory uh, where you get an asset bubble that comes along with that inflation, and that was in federal land. So one of the things that the federal government had been doing to raise money is to sell land in the West. They had been raising money through tariffs, but the second major source of revenue for the federal government was land sales. And 
if you look at the policies of land sales from independence through about 1830 to 35, it became easier and easier for people to qualify to buy federal land. The acreage requirements started out, you couldn't buy anything less than 640 acres, and then that dropped down to 320 acres, and then it was 160 minimum, and then finally by 1817, that had dropped to 80 acres minimum. So this is becoming more and more affordable for more people. And you couple that with the increase in, uh, in um, bank credit that occurs after about 1830. And then in 1832, the minimum number of acres drops down to 40 acres. So now uh, many, many people would be able to qualify to buy this federal land match that with all this easy money that is starting to hit the economy in the early 1830s, and you get the recipe for this kind of asset bubble. Um, I'll quote here at some length from, from Scott Trask, who says, if you're interested in the link, I can find that for you, or you can search for it on Mises.org. But he says, um, according to Austrian monetary theory, when government and fractional reserve banks inflate the money supply, and lower the natural interest rate, they create an artificial economic book market by, or marked by rising consumption, increased indebtedness, and expanded capital investment, all funded by new money. The monetary inflation of the 1830s was not caused primarily by the influx of Mexican silver, but by the fractional reserve banking system, which used the silver as a fund on which to pyramid new discounts, and loans. For every Mexican silver dollar deposited in a bank by an American merchant or manufacturer, the bank created at least five new paper dollars or paper credits. So he says, look, um, you know, we, we've misinterpreted a lot of this. Um, Andrew Jackson got a, a lot of uh, blame because, not because of his taking dollars out of the Bank of the United States and putting them in these state banks that would be more inflationary. And, and that's not to defend the Bank of the United States. You understand that's that the, the move of those dollars was to create the ground for that, that, greater, that greater inflation. But one of the things that Andrew Jackson did that got him a lot of blame was something called the Species Circular where he said, if you want to buy federal land, you have to pay in gold or silver. We're not going to take these state banknotes anymore. At the federal level, you have to pay in specie. You have to pay in gold or silver. So um, this probably didn't, didn't help the situation because it did create a drain on banks, especially in the West, which produced a kind of a contagion to the banks in the East as well. It did create a, uh, some pressure on bank reserves in the West as people who wanted to buy land. And there, again, there were a lot of people wanting to buy land in the West at that point. That drain of specie um, added to the, the problems of the, uh, of the banking system at, at the time. So um, uh, uh, Trask says um, that... Um, the, uh, the chartering of all of these new state banks after 1830 uh, meant that the banking system as a whole could inflate the money supply significantly. Um, 
Many contemporary political economists all cited Jackson's campaign against the federal bank as spurring a bank mania in the states. Uh, state legislators rushed to organize new banks in the hope of getting a share of the public deposits. Um, uh, and then um, that's, that's, that's a large part of this, of this story. He says, when the Bank of the United States was the fiscal agent of the federal government from 1817 through mid-1833, this money was deposited in that federal bank or one of its branches. And um, when the public um, saw that this money was going to head into the state banks, they didn't really feel the same uh, compunctions about pulling money out of the um, uh, the the federal bank as opposed to state banks, the, 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 uh, the public, or rather the Bank of the United States, knew that it had to keep higher reserves because people would pull money out. They would, they would cash in their paper for gold or silver more readily from the BUS than they would from state banks. So the BUS had that pressure to keep those reserves higher. State banks would not feel that same pressure. And so the asset bubble just exploded after about 1833, where land sales in 1833 were 4.2 million. In 1834, they were 6.1. By 1835, they were 16.2. And then by 1836, $24.9 million. So a massive increase in land sales occurring as uh, the 1830s proceeded before the panic. In 1837, nearly $7 million of land sales took place. Um, so the inflation, which had started about 1830, and the asset bubble, which picked up from 1833 to early 1837, sort of set the stage for this massive crash that occurred late in 1837, or later in 1837. So... Um, if the United States had been on a 100% reserve system in the 1830s and before, I don't think we would have seen this kind of boom-bust cycle that we've seen uh, many times since then. This um, boom-bust cycle is not something that originated with the Fed. The Fed simply continued it, and you might say tried to perfect that boom-bust cycle uh, but this is, this is present anytime government has any capacity to intervene in a monetary system, which is what they were doing in the 1830s. The Bank of the United States, the state banking systems with their, um, you know, 10% reserve requirements or less, uh, all set, set up a situation in which this boom and the asset bubble could occur and then crash with all the painful effects of that. The government's been intervening in the monetary supply for a very long time, and in particular, when there's a war, um, along with fractional reserve banking, we can expect to see trouble. Um, this is especially true if the government does not have the ability to tax easily or borrow easily. Politically, the, the federal government was, was constrained in doing that after the War of 1812. Um, the War of 1812, you could say, even set the, the, the wheels in motion for that Panic of 1837 by creating the impetus behind the Bank of the United States, 
creating this kind of war between different factions over the Bank of the United States and ultimately the withdrawal of funds in 1833 from that bank and depositing those in state, state banks. Um, so when you have a government that is financially stressed, as often occurs during a war, when you have a government that is faced with rising interest rates, it's often prone to resort to inflation. I had actually Im implied that, but didn't really spell it out at the end of my talk this morning, that uh, one of the things we're facing right now is a very heavily indebted government that shows no sign of slackening its debt accumulation, coupled with upward pressure on interest rates, which looks very much like it's going to tend to, it's going to, tend to create a, um, a, a kind of a fiscal, <coughs> excuse me, a fiscal crisis if there's, uh, if, if there's no way for the federal government to continue to borrow at those same low rates that it enjoyed for so long, there's going to be a lot of, a lot of temptation to use the printing press. And that's something that I'm, I'm concerned about, and I think we can draw some lessons from those earlier crises like the, uh, the one surrounding the Panic of 1837. I'll stop here, turn it over to Patrick. Okay.